0: The new Ghost Stories podcast is supported by Horrified, the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at horrifiedmag. What is it about the festive season that lends itself to the ritual of the ghost story? It can't just be the Dickens effect, nor can it be the sole influence of M.R. James and his annual storytelling ritual. They may have brought the tradition greater popularity, but they were tapping into something that was already there. What is it that creates this desire to haunt and terrify at the most festive, joyous time of the year? It could be that all the good cheer is just a bit too much for some. The perverse desire to sprinkle a little salt onto all the glad tidings may be too irresistible. It's more likely, though, that the tradition is rooted in a sense of moralism. This is a good time to be thankful, after all when we're surrounded by friends and family with abundant food and drink and gifts to share and enjoy, it's a good time to remind ourselves of just how lucky we are. A little terror can make us all the more grateful for all that we have, not to mention what may become of us if we stray from a righteous path. Virginia Woolf suggested we enjoy a festive ghost story because it is pleasant to be afraid when we are conscious that we are in no kind of danger. It may be the darkest time of the year, but we are all together, inside, warm and comfortable by the fire, safe from whatever might be hidden in the shadows of night. I'm sure this is all part of the appeal, but I think a reflective impulse also plays its part. Christmas is an ancient celebration, after all, dating back far further than the birth of Christ, a fact M. R. James would have been only too aware. The year is coming to a close. There will be just a few empty days between now and the new year. It's time to take stock assess the past and consider the future, an idea Charles Dickens would be only too aware of. When we gather together, perhaps the only time all year, we get to see all that has stayed the same and all that has changed. Our friends and family may be familiar, but they're all a little older, different in ways that may be small or may be significant. The children are growing up, the parents are becoming elders. The elders may wonder how much time they have left. One generation moves forward, ready to replace the next. These are times of sharing, comparison. We think about where we are now, how far we have come, and where we are going next. We share memories of good times, bad times, rivalries are stoked, grudges may simmer, once close bonds are rekindled, absent friends are missed. Christmas puts life on pause. The future is just around the corner, but the new year has not yet arrived. We have these few days of limbo before normality returns. We've considered our past, paused our present. What will our future hold? How will our own stories end? Will we experience a classic Dickensian fate, where rights are wronged, mistakes are forgiven, and all ends with us happy, loved, and contented? Or will we go the way of a Jamesian protagonist, doomed by their hubris and unable to escape their fate? Only time will tell. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we delve into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. For quite some time, there's been a huge gap in the New Ghost Stories archive that's just been waiting for a Christmas ghost story to fill it. I've come tantalisingly close to adding one on a number of occasions. There have been promising leads, interesting accounts to explore, but ultimately, I haven't been able to confidently publish any of these cases for various reasons. This is the season of good cheer, and some people tend to enjoy a bit more cheer than others, making some festive accounts much less reliable than I'd be comfortable with. Joking aside, Christmas can be a difficult time of year for many, and that's certainly the case for the subject whose account forms today's story. It's a case that I've only very recently been able to complete, so if you're listening to this, you're amongst the first to ever hear it. If you're a returning listener, you'll know better than to expect this to be a cosy early evening chiller. New ghost stories deal with real people and real lives. These terrors aren't buried deep in libraries or crypts. There will be ghosts of the past, but the fear is much more in the present. This is a tale of a man reaching a crossroads in his life. He has resisted change for many years, and now catastrophe will leave him with no choice but to chart a new course. In that sense there is little of the Christmas carol to the story, but you should not expect a happy end with all threads neatly tied up. And whereas Dickens makes his ghosts spectres of substance, the question here remains as to whether these spirits are real ghosts of the past or just manifestations of a man's own tortured mind a subconscious attempt to somehow right wrongs that can never be put right. You will, once again, have to make up your own mind as to what is fact and what is fiction. Before we dive in, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast, and to everyone who's helped support it during its first six months. The good news is that I'll be continuing with episodes in the new year, and all being well, I'll be finishing work on New Ghost Stories Volume 3, where this story will appear early next year, so you can enjoy the full text in the spring. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, follow, review or subscribe on any platform. It really does make a huge difference. I'll wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I'll leave you now with New Ghost Stories case number 333, which is called After the Flood. The following story has been shared under an agreement that respects the right of the subject to remain anonymous. Certain names, dates, and locations have been changed to protect that anonymity. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the places, people, or events that feature in this story, I ask that you not reveal any knowledge or information publicly, out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. It used to be our home. When the floodwaters came, they didn't roll up to the front door and start pouring over the doorstep, First it comes up through the drains from the sewer and into the pipes. I was sitting in our front room with my eyes on the river. They said we were going to be alright, but warning started to come through on the radio. The river was as high as I had ever seen it. But I thought it would take a long time for that water to come all the way to the house. I was thinking about what we had we could use instead of sandbags to stop it where the gate was and hold it back at the garden wall. Then I saw a damp patch in the middle of the carpet. I watched it grow to twice its size in just a moment. I should have made a plan for how I was going to get all our things upstairs. I just had to grab what I could, fast as I could, and then you've got to find places to put it. You can't run the TV upstairs and put it anywhere. You've got to put it somewhere, you won't fall over it. I was rushing up and down those stairs with anything I could carry. I started trying to do the technology first, but after that it was just whatever I saw and could carry. There wasn't time to think about what was most important. It happened so fast. In 15 minutes it was up to my ankles. The downstairs toilet was overflowing and pouring into the kitchen. And I thought I had to move the car or else that would be caught in the water and i would never get out. I spent a few minutes emptying drawers and running bags upstairs. Then I had to find out what I'd done with my keys. I didn't know if I'd taken them upstairs by mistake when I was just grabbing anything. I found them in my coat pocket. It was a good job I remembered to take that coat with me. I went out the back door and got in the car. It was raining wild cats and dogs. The water was almost up to the bumper. I was worried I wouldn't get it to the end of the road. It starts to go uphill at the end but dips before you get there. If I'd have left it a few minutes longer I wouldn't have made it. Lots of other cars had been parked up the side of the hill. I had to drive far up the street to find space. I planned to run back down to the house but it was too late. I was up high and I could see the bank of the river had broken. Water had crossed the road and was flowing right into our garden. Half the town was under. The rain was running down the street like a river. People stood around watching in disbelief. Some of them were crying. Some were in shock. It was unbelievable. First time in over a hundred years. And it all happened in half an hour. Vic didn't believe me when I told her. She called to say she might have to stay in Manchester because of flooding on the train tracks. I said, It's worse than that, love. It's in the living room. She was asking me about all the things I'd managed to save, and I was trying to remember what I'd done. She was going on about shoes and a passport and was getting upset, and I just wanted to scream at her. I'd really done my best and I'd been on my own. I'd no one to help me. She asked me what I was going to do, and I said, I don't know, babe. Whole town's under. It's fucked. Everything's fucked. It was hopeless. I couldn't believe it was happening. I didn't even have a change of clothes. I stayed with a workmate that night. Vic got a hotel with some of her work buddies. She couldn't get back until after lunch the day after. We drove to the house in the afternoon. It was December. It was already dark. It was like a ghost town but with Christmas decorations hanging from the lampposts. By that time the worst of it was gone. It had washed away almost as quick as it had come on, back down the drains and back down the river. There were still lots of places we couldn't drive the car because the water couldn't drain away. There were already people in the streets throwing out their destroyed belongings. Broken furniture, soaked sofa cushions and wet boxes were piling up in the gardens and on the pavements. Christmas trees were on their sides, dying early this year. We knew it was going to be bad, that everything at home was going to be ruined. it was even worse than you can imagine. It's not just that things get wet. The water picks things up as it rises. It throws everything around. The sofa was on its side, the dining table was upside down. My armchair was swollen out of shape. Everything was the colour of mud brown and still soaking wet. Things from the kitchen had gotten everywhere. Plates and pots and pans were all over the place. Cornflakes and pasta and rice were scattered all around. It was like our whole life had been put through the blender. Guessing by the watermarks, the water had gotten about three feet high. There was still over an inch on the floor. Carpets were fucked. Vic started to kick off pretty quickly about the things I'd saved and the things I hadn't, as if I'd chosen selfishly to save only the things I liked, basically because I managed to save my PlayStation. She went off on one about how there was a basket of clothes in the laundry room she'd left for me to put in the wash for her. They are in a basket, you could have just taken them straight upstairs. I said they'd probably be okay after a wash, but maybe they wouldn't. The washing machine was lodged in the doorway to the laundry and the fridge was on its side, blocking the way to that. She realised I hadn't taken anything from the cupboard under the stairs, which is where she keeps her coats and shoes and a bunch of other junk. How was I supposed to know about that stuff? It isn't as if I had much time to think about what I was doing. But she didn't want to be reasoned with. She really flipped out when she found loads of her old photos on the floor. She'd been keeping her old photo albums in that cupboard. How dare I save my bike and PlayStation and leave those behind? There were people on our street who'd lost everything. Some of them were away on holiday. They might not even know what had happened yet. Some pensioners had been trapped upstairs in the freezing cold all night. And she was having a go at me. I'm the only reason it hadn't been ten times worse. She just wanted to lash out about something. So I have to be a punching bag as usual. If she cared so much about those pictures, they wouldn't have been piled up under the stairs. She hasn't used a real camera in about ten years. It's all selfies now. Here's me and my mates at a bar. Here's me and my mates at a different bar. Here's me and my mates again, but we have dog ears. I said we could try to dry them out and salvage them. But no, they were destroyed. And that was that. Not going to try. She just wanted the drama. We went upstairs and filled some suitcases with clothes and other essentials by torchlight. She had some friends who we could stay with for a few nights. I guess we were lucky. Some folk I knew were sleeping at the town hall or in the leisure centre. That first week was hell. We had to contact the insurance and declare ourselves homeless to get rehoused. We ended up moving into the Holiday Inn a few miles away while we waited for a temporary flat to be sorted out for us. I met the insurance agent at the house the next day. He'd been pretty much going from one house to the next down the whole street. It'll be weeks before the damp would dry out, he told me. This was the coldest time of the year. If the temperature dropped below freezing, there could be even more damage. One of the things we had to do was get the house cleared out properly. He warned us that our belongings wouldn't be safe. There was damp and mould, of course, but there were also scumbags and thieves. With houses empty, anything we left would be easy pickings. And they might not even want to rob us. They might just fuck things up for the hell of it. There could even be squatters. So I had to clear things out myself. I was a bit slow on the uptake. Lots of people had got in early and booked up storage places locally. I had to get a garage miles out of town. And I had to do it all myself. Vic wasn't wrong when she said I had more free time than her. I was stuck doing only half time at work. But she didn't have to say it the way she did. It was like it was so obvious that I had to do this because she's the only one earning any real money at the moment. She doesn't have to rub it in. I'm probably losing my job in the new year unless things pick up. And she was blatantly happy to find an excuse to let me do all the heavy lifting. Work did at least loan me a van to help. And they moved the shifts I had to the morning, where they could. I still lost some hours, but it could have been worse. It was even more like a ghost town when I went back to get started. It was so quiet. You just get used to there being all kinds of sounds in the background. Cars pulling in and out of drives, kids mucking around outside, the boiler clicking on and off. All that was gone. There was a truck or a car driving by in the distance sometimes, but other than that, there was just the sound of the river running along. Still too high, reminding me what it had done and it could do again. Even though this was like the third time I'd come back, it still hurt to go inside. This was the home we bought together, Spent months trying to find. The place where we were going to start our family. We knew as soon as we saw it this was going to be the one for us. We'd always wanted one of the old tall terraced houses close to the river. What a fucking mistake. It was hard to know where to start, looking at all the carnage. Some stuff was just a write-off. The sofa we'd spent ages choosing that had cost us a fortune. There's just no point. Even if you could clean them, the frames would be warped and there'd be things living in them now. The dining table and chairs were all warped too, so was the TV stand. Hours spent at Ikea, hours spent with an Allen key fighting about how to put them together. I'd need to break them up, make it easy to take them out with the rubbish. It's not like I could have held back the floodwaters. But you can't help but wonder. You just think you could have done more. I thought the best thing to get out of there first were the mattresses. That's if they weren't ruined already by damp. To get them out, I'd have to clear a path through the wreckage in the living room and in the kitchen. I started being careful, but after a bit I was just kicking and chucking things around. If it was fucked, it was fucked. I didn't need to be careful. Upstairs, black damp was clinging to the walls. You could feel the damp in the air. The mattresses and duvets looked to only have a few spots, but it wasn't like I had a microscope couldn't even turn the light on. I'd forgotten how much of a bastard it is to move a mattress, especially down widening staircases. I didn't really want to be dragging it across the floor, the carpets were still soaked, but it was tough to keep holding them up, and trying to get them out the back door through the kitchen. It took forever. By the time I got the second one down it was almost dark. That's how quickly I had to work. It were just a few hours of daylight before the sun went down. Just a few hours before I got really, really cold. Even with fingerless gloves, moving things around was fucking tough. When both mattresses were in the van, I took bin bags upstairs to get down the rest of the clothes. I sat my torch down and went through the cupboards and wardrobes, filling the bags up. It was almost all Vic stuff. I hardly had any clothes. I was rushing things. I'd wrapped up warm, but now I was really starting to freeze. The feeling was going in my wet toes, and it was a creepy place to be in. Everything about the atmosphere was just bad for me being there. With everything so quiet, every sound from the building adjusting to the damp was eerie. Every time I heard a voice or sound from someone else stuck doing the same thing in their house, it made me jump. I was going down from the top floor. I was carrying four full bags of clothes and my torch. I could feel one of the bags tear, and when I tried to grab it in a different place, the torch slipped from my fingers. It bounced down the stairs. When it hit the next landing, the light went out. I could hear the batteries rolling across the floor. You don't know how dark it was. The whole town is switched off. Not even the street lights are on. If I looked out the window, I could only see tiny lights in the distance. The weather was so bad I couldn't even see the stars. I should have dropped some of the bags, but I didn't want to have to go back up again for them. I squeezed myself and them down to the first floor landing. I found the torch by kicking around with my feet. But I wasn't going to find the batteries. There was just the one set of stairs left. I just had to get around the corner landing. That was okay, I made it. I took one step at a time, even though I'd walked these steps thousands of times before. My eyes only really adjusted to the dark by the time I was nearly at the bottom. I was so glad to be out of there. I took the bags in the back and drove off faster than I should. When I got the stuff to the lock-up, I wondered whether the mattresses could even dry out there with the cold air. I'd need to get some heaters in. After the fuss around the photos, i boxed them all up and taken them back to the hotel. They weren't all damaged. I found this one box that had survived somehow. It must have floated on top of something else to safety. It was only a bit wet at the bottom. I had myself a beer and opened it up to look. I wasn't expecting what was inside. These photos were ancient, past-life pictures. I was like 15. There were photos from before I'd even met Vic. There were pictures where I still had cheekbones. Christ, there were pictures of me playing five-a-side with Craig. You don't get this with your social media. A chance to just sit down and flick through some old pictures. This was like archaeology. I didn't remember some of these ever having been taken. I didn't remember some of the places or some of the parties. There were no tags or anything to help me. I just had to let the memories all come back, like putting together a jigsaw in my head with real pieces. I hadn't thought about Craig in ages. We were thick as thieves once. He actually introduced me to Vic. Well, when I say introduced, I'd seen her around and... He knew I fancied her, but I didn't have the nerve to actually talk to her. It was Craig who did the groundwork. I was looking for him during free period. He was sat with her and a mate Cassie, and he was like, Hey up Calvin, come meet the girls. You normally had to give me a few beers before I could chat up a girl, but Craig had talked me up a bit. Made out I was like the best striker in the five-a-side league. Vic was into football, that's what got us talking. City fans when it were dark days to be City fans. We were the true faithful. It probably wasn't free period. I was probably just skipping class. Didn't last the year at college. Didn't want to do it. I wanted shot of school. Once I didn't have to be there in class. Once I knew I could just skip the lessons. Once I knew I didn't have to stay till the end of the day. That was it. Done. I kept pretending showing up for about six months. And then I got my driving license and that was the last nail in the coffin for college. I got straight into work. I was doing deliveries for curry houses and pizza places. I was working bars. I just lied about my age. They never checked. I was working three to four different jobs sometimes, but it was fine because I liked it. I liked working, getting about, not sitting around in a classroom. I really liked having money. It was pretty much going out as fast as it was coming in. I think that's probably why Vic didn't give up on me after dropping out. I was pretty generous with the presents and the nights out. I mean, I liked it doing things for her. My parents got sick of me, though. After a year, they kicked me out. If I was working, I could pay my own way, which is fair enough, really, but I hated them for it, until I realised once I had my own pad, Vic could come over any time she liked. Those were good days. Probably should have stayed at college. Then I'd have better things to do now than drive trucks and hoping not to get laid off for the third time in five years. Best picture of the lot was the one of all four of us in a fake KFC 2am in the morning, Manchester. We'd been to see Primal Scream, and we were waiting for the 6am bus to take us back home. I mean, we were all fucked. We used to do that all the time, go to a gig, go clubbing, sleep a couple of hours in the bus station, and then get a National Express back at daylight. That was the last time, the last gig before Cassie and Craig went off to uni. That's why we're all dressed up. We're in suits and ties, ball gowns for the ladies. We weren't looking so smart by that time in the morning. That was an amazing night. End of an era. Last time all four of us were together. Can't do that sort of thing anymore. Too old for it. It gave me the idea to go get us a bargain bucket for dinner. We couldn't cook anything, so we were being forced to eat out or have takeaways. Thought it'd be fun. I drove round to the local chicken place, got us an eight-piece bucket with corn on the cob and spicy sauce. She was there waiting for me when I got back and was a bit like, what the fuck? But I talked her into it. She was saying she was going vegan in January, but she said that last year as well. We started going through the photos together, trying to work out from shaky band photos who'd we gone to see and when, laughing at some of our fashion choices, the terrible drinks we used to buy and couldn't stand now. Vic told me Cassie was married to some stockbroker and was living in Hong Kong. They still sometimes messaged on Facebook. We didn't talk much about what happened to Craig. One of her work friends called and Vic disappeared for almost an hour on the phone talking about whatever it is they talk about. I sat on my own, putting the pictures back in the box. When even was the last time I'd even seen Craig in the flesh? I wasn't even sure. We probably hadn't even spoken. That night I had a weird dream that our house was on a beach and the tide was coming in. I was trying to dig a trench and make a barrier between the house and the water while piles of sand kept falling back into the trench and then the sea poured in and I couldn't dig fast enough. That next morning they announced what I knew they were going to, that work at the depot was going to start winding down and that they'd close up in the new year. They'd tell us all next week when our last shifts were going to be. Some of us wouldn't be required beyond Christmas. It was one hell of an early present. At least back at the house, I didn't have to listen to any Christmas music. My first job on the second day was to find some bills and other paperwork that we'd need for the insurers. Midges had settled in. There were clouds of bugs flying around in our home. And looking over old mortgage bills and home insurance papers for a house that wasn't even a home anymore made me feel more depressed. I boxed it all up to go over at the hotel. The photos last night had made me a bit nostalgic. To feel less depressed, I decided to track down my old CDs boxed away in the spare room. The house didn't look so terrible from the top floor. There were still spots of damp on the walls and on the ceiling. More were forming each day. But other than that, it almost looked as it used to look. The CDs were in my corner of what was going to be Vic's study. It was used so much for work that you couldn't see the desk for all the junk on top of it. It had been her gym for a while too. There was an exercise bike under some old curtains. She had a membership for a gym near her office now, although I didn't remember seeing her gym clothes in the wash recently. I made up some boxes I'd pinched from work. I filled them up as I made my way to the back where my things were trapped. I had four large plastic boxes of discs, music going back to when I first started getting into the charts, all the way up to the mid-2000s when I'd stopped really buying them. Just didn't have the time anymore and everything had started to sound the same. Inside one of the boxes was where I kept all my old ticket stubs. Maybe I could use them to figure out who some of those old band photos were of. But the first ticket out was for a band I couldn't even remember the name of. Didn't even know the venue either. Came back to me slowly as I rummaged about. It must have been the band I'd seen in Bristol. I'd had no idea who they were, and I didn't like them at all. It was folk music. I wasn't into any of that shite, and I wasn't sure why Craig was into it either. But he'd bought me a ticket, so I'd gone. I'd gone to visit him in Bristol after he'd gone to uni. I meant to go soon after he moved, but I couldn't get the time off at first. By then, he and Cassie had broken up. Cassie had gone to Exeter, which isn't that far away, but Craig was apparently not making any effort. He didn't seem like he wanted to spend any time with her. Kept making excuses, and she'd got fed up. Said he just acted like he didn't care about her. Like he was someone else. He seemed the same when I was texting with him. But when I went down there, I could tell he'd changed. His whole crowd was different. He was living in a house share and his mates were all southerners. Sort of nerdy kids. They weren't the kind of guys we normally hung out with. They were the type who'd go to the match, but they'd have a vegetarian hot dog at half time with kettle chips. It was strange watching him around them, because he was trying to fit in with who they were. I mean. Folk concerts on a tugboat. (laughs) What the fuck? I never heard Craig talk about politics in his whole life. And suddenly it matters if we're in a fair trade cafe? There were times when I thought he was embarrassed to be around me. Like he'd stop me talking about the things we used to do together. Or what I was doing at work. I worked in a factory, so what? It was like they couldn't imagine why he'd want to do that. It's just a job for earning a living. But things weren't going so well now, were they? I wouldn't have pictured myself here all those years ago. I didn't think much about the future. I just expected things would work out. I mean, this room with junk in it was going to be our nursery. Who knows if that's what Vic even wants now. She's so focused on a job. But at least she has one. What am I going to do with myself? I need to stop going over things. I started bringing the boxes downstairs. Christ, I couldn't wait to be finished with this. But I wasn't even doing it very fast. The atmosphere in the house was crushing. It made me feel slow, maybe a bit claustrophobic, especially as it got dark again. I remember Craig trying to set me up with one of his new mates. Me and Vic were going through a rough patch. We were fighting a lot. She'd moved in with me and it wasn't working out, so she'd gone back to her parents in one of her huffs. He kept going on about this girl, how he thought I was going to really like her. She was just okay, nothing special. I didn't still feel right being with anyone but Vic. And it wasn't like we'd really broken up. She was just threatening to move out. She's always queen of the drama. I don't know why Craig was so keen to get us together. The girl didn't even seem like she thought much of me at first. Then she got really drunk really quickly. Then she was all over me and all over the place. I didn't like it and I tried to get away from her and she didn't like that much and started getting all aggro. I didn't want anything to do with her. Craig saw I wasn't enjoying myself. He decided we should go somewhere else and instead of the student union he took us around a few bars, just me and him. More like the old days. The evening picked up and I started having a better time. When places started closing up we got a takeaway and went back to watch match of the day. His mates were still out so it was just the two of us. But I'd had too many and it had caught up with me. I could barely stand myself up. After chucking up in the loo he helped me back to his bedroom. I had a blow-up mattress waiting for me on the floor. I can only just about remember what happened then, and if it hadn't been so fucking awkward after, I might have thought I'd imagined it. His room was in the front room of the house, so he was trying to get me down the hall. He had his arm around me, helping me stay up, but I'd sort of slipped. He had to prop me up against the wall to stop me falling, and so he could open the door. I was going in and out of consciousness. I just remember opening my eyes and he was, he was kissing me, on the lips, right up in my face, kissing me. I I didn't even know what to think. I was too drunk to really do anything about it. And then his mates got home and they just like pushed past us. And while he was talking with them, I went into his room and passed out on the mattress. Didn't really sink in what had happened until the morning after. Could barely look at him in the eye. And he could barely look at me either. And that's how I knew it had really happened. We went out for breakfast with his housemates, pretending like nothing had happened. Then I walked back to the coach and we talked about nothing much. Once I was at the station, he was like, Yeah, goodbye. And he walked off. It was never the same between us after that. We were never really friends again. God, why was I thinking about all this now? It was this fucking house. It was bringing up all kinds of old shit. I had to stop thinking about it. I'd never get out of here if I didn't get a move on. The sun had gone down. I'd got myself a helmet with a headlamp on. It was much easier than carrying a torch. I cleared all of Vic's clothes out of our bedrooms and now I had to bag up the rest of her things from the spare room below because she'd managed to fill up all those wardrobes as well. I was going through the drawers when I heard a cracking sound. The house was making all kinds of weird noises, but this one was so close. All my hairs were standing on one end. I heard the sound again a second later. I stopped what I was doing. I stood up and I noticed I was shaking. Then it started. Crack, 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 crack. I turned around and I watched a whole stretch of wallpaper peel from the top of the wall, curling up and rolling down, almost all the way to the bottom. The top of the strip next to it started to roll down too, it got about halfway. I'd been holding in my breath, I let it all out. What the fuck was wrong with me? Now it was getting jumpy. I felt like I might be about to have a heart attack. I felt like I could hear the beating of my chest echoing off the walls. Then my phone goes off and I almost go through the ceiling. It was Vic. She was letting me know that her and some of her work friends were grabbing a drink at the pub by the station. It was the going away drinks for a couple she knew who were about to go off travelling. I said I'd meet her down there, but I didn't really want to go. I was miserable and tired. I could hear something upstairs now. It sounded like something had fallen over, but I decided to ignore it. I needed to finish up and get out of there. It was doing bad things to my head. I loaded up the van, and as I was about to leave, I heard that sound again. It was too loud to be wallpaper peeling off. I wasn't going to check it out. I'd had enough. I couldn't hack it after that night. After dropping things off at the lock-up, I drove back to the Holiday Inn for a shower and a change. That hot water felt amazing. With all the tension in the house, I'd almost forgotten how cold it was. I felt good for a little while. It didn't last long. I walked to the pub and Vic was there with her work friends. I remembered how much I fucking hate her work friends. First off, they never talk about anything else but work. And then all they do when they talk about work is complain about work. And they bitch about each other too. You think it was a real soap opera the way they go on. And when I got there, Vic was like, hey hun, gives me a peck on the cheek, and then gets right back into it be terrible for her to miss out on hearing who said what about who and who hates who and who is going to be fired for doing what. She never asked me about what happened with my day. I basically lost my job that morning. Maybe she'd be interested to hear about that. Did it mean anything to her that I was spending all day in the ruins of the house where we were supposed to be spending our whole life together? The only time she wanted to talk to me was to tell me the housing people had been on the phone to say they got a flat for us. I was pretty happy to hear about that at first. She showed me a picture of one of the new build flats outside the old town. She seemed really excited about living there. It was close to the station which was good for her. She said one of her mates lived there and they were really nice. She'd obviously forgotten that we'd seen one of those flats when we were searching for our house. But we decided we didn't want a new place. We wanted a real house with a garden where the kids could play. Didn't she care about that anymore? It was only temporary, I know. Maybe I was looking for reasons to be upset. But it was like she was a different person now. Did she even want kids anymore? Did she even want to be with me anymore? I could have walked out of that room and she wouldn't have noticed. I preferred it when she was a secretary. Now she's in sales, she's completely changed. She's not the girl I grew up with. I'd had enough by the time they played last Christmas on the stereo for the second time. I told her I wasn't feeling well. She said I looked a bit pale. I left while she stayed for one more. I walked back to the hotel on my own. The party was loud this end of town. It wasn't so swinging just a few yards down the road where the flood had hit. The pubs that were open were dead quiet. I hadn't been able to go in since the flood. I couldn't bear to listen to people talking about how bad they were having it. It was raining again. I was walking down the high street. The street lights were still out and the Christmas decorations hung miserably in the dark. The only signs of life were the foxes. Old now because the streets were empty, picking through the bones like vultures. What was I going to do? I hadn't even started my Christmas shopping. And what was I going to do for money? I had to start looking for a job now. Who knew how long that'd take? Couldn't even get my wife's attention. Christmas with her family. Her brothers going on about their holidays, and their youngest was about to start school, and how they'd just joined the rambling club. The smug pricks. How long was this going to go on for? How long before we admitted the inevitable? That we'd never have a happy family in our happy little home. We were over. I watched the rain trickle down the drain. Fucking season of good cheer. I lay on the bed in our room and started looking at those old photos again. What I would have given to have Craig with me. To take me out for a few drinks right then. After that weekend we were done. Our friendship was over. We just never talked about it. I had no idea he was gay. It kind of freaked me out. Had he been that way the whole time? Had he fancied me for years? I didn't understand. I didn't know how to say anything about it. I messaged him sometimes. Random things about football or work. Never mentioning that night. He'd always text back with short answers and that'd be it. And that's if he messaged at all. We saw each other sometimes. He'd be home during holidays and would visit his family. I'd bump into him in the pub or around town. Maybe he'd say hello. Sometimes he'd blank me. If we spoke, he'd smile and act like nothing had changed. But then he'd move on really quickly, talk to someone else or make out he was in a rush. Eventually I'd just stopped seeing him around. Never even told Vic about what had happened. I knew if I told her it would get out and she'd be gossiping and telling everyone. And I didn't think Craig deserved to have people talking about him behind his back. It was different being gay back then. People still thought it was weird and guys didn't want to admit it. It was okay for other people to be gay, but not if you were one of the guys. I don't know how I'd have been if Craig had just come out and told me, but I'd probably been okay with it. I didn't have anything against the gays, but when he just came and kissed me, I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't like it. It was like he'd been a different guy the whole time. That night I dreamed again that the house was by the beach and the tide was coming in. I was sat in a chair in the living room and the water poured in and the chair floated up on the tide. And I just sat there as the chair hit the ceiling and I went under the water. I started to sink to the bottom and I could see someone down there looking up at me. I had to get up and go to the bathroom. I felt all cold inside. That's why I'd been dreaming about beaches. Because Craig was on my mind so much. I only found out because I'd read it in the paper. One day he'd just walked out onto the beach in Rill taken off all his clothes and walked into the water. And he never came back. I hadn't seen him in years. It was in the winter and the beach was empty, but someone saw him and tried to get him to come back. They told the Coast Guard and they searched for days, but his body never washed up anywhere. The paper covered the search for a while, then the stories stopped. I guess there was no more news. They probably decided he was dead, but I was never invited to any funeral. I remember seeing his photo in the paper. He looked so different. He'd lost all his hair and put on tons of weight. I don't look much like I did when I was in my 20s either, but he looked like he'd really let himself go. He looked miserable in the picture. I couldn't sleep the rest of the night and I was too miserable to get up in the morning. Vic tried to get me out of bed, but I couldn't face it. I text in sick to work. I lay in bed, staring at the walls didn't feel like breakfast, I didn't feel like doing anything. I knew I couldn't stay there forever. I did eventually pick myself up and start moving around. I felt hundreds of pounds heavier. I went down to the hotel cafe and I had a dry croissant and watched this morning for about an hour. Maybe it was the weather. Everything looked washed out and grey. The last thing I wanted to do was go back to that house and carry on filling up boxes. But I knew I'd have to go I couldn't spend the day sitting around, I had a job to do, and I wasn't going to get done any quicker by trying to put it off. But thinking of going back made me feel sick to my stomach. I drove up outside and spent 20 minutes sat in the van, hands gripping the steering wheel. I needed to pluck up my courage just to go inside, to pick through the bones of my life. What was the point? Come on, Calvin, come on. We had a flat lined up for us now we need things to live there. If I focused on boxing up things for the kitchen, all those bits were downstairs somewhere. It wasn't so dark downstairs. It didn't feel so claustrophobic. I could do a few hours, fill a few boxes. That'd be worth it. Every bit I did today was a bit I didn't have to do another day. Everything felt heavier. Everything felt like too much effort. And as I went through cupboards and picked things up off the floor, I kept finding disgusting things, rotten food, rat shit, mould. And there were sounds from upstairs, this thumping noise. I tried to ignore it, but it wouldn't go away. I tried to work harder. I'd worked on trying to get the washing machine out of the doorway so I could get into the laundry room. The noise started to get louder. I didn't want to go upstairs. Just thinking about it made me want to curl up in a ball. But the longer the noises went on, the more I knew I couldn't ignore it. I knew I'd have to go upstairs and find out what it was. It was probably just a bird in the attic or the neighbours doing something to repair their house. But I was scared. As the thumping sound went on, I started whispering, Stop it! Please stop it! I was wandering back and forth in the kitchen. I couldn't focus on what I was doing. I shouted at the ceiling. And it did stop. Was it okay now? Could I just stay downstairs and leave? I knew I couldn't. I had to see what it was. It had stopped now. Maybe it was safe. It was dark again. I turned on my headlamp. I walked to the bottom of the stairs and waited. There were no more sounds. It must be safe now. Of course it was. Why was it so hard to walk up there? What was I even afraid of? I closed my eyes and started, one stare at a time. I felt like I had vertigo. The stairs seemed taller than before. I felt dizzy when I opened my eyes. I just had to get around the corner on the first floor landing. A thump came from in the bedroom. I tried to run but I slipped on the steps and fell into the corner. I had to pull myself together. I took a deep breath. I walked the few stairs back to the first floor, shining the headlamp into the bedroom. There really wasn't anything ahead. I waited a little to see if anything would happen. I walked in slowly. I turned all the way around, shining the torch across the room from the empty wardrobes to the mould-stained curtains over the bed frame and past the empty drawers. It was all empty but just when I was starting to feel safe there was another thump. I turned around and around and around shining the torch against every wall up and down up and down across everything left in that room again and again. I made myself dizzy. Where was it coming from? The damp on the walls. The more I looked at it the more it looked like it was dripping like the walls were weeping and my light went out. I hadn't charged the battery. I started hitting it. It blinked on. It blinked off. I heard a shrieking sound. It came from behind the wardrobe. The lamp flickered on for a second. The light bounced off a man. He lunged at me both arms out. He knocked me down. The headlamp flew off my head. He was cold and naked and wet. It tried to wrap its arms around me. Its icy, slimy skin rubbed against my neck. I hit the floor and I rolled. I pushed him off me. He thumped against the wall and screamed. I screamed back. It was going mental on the floor. I ran for the door without looking back. It was squealing like a wounded animal. I could hear it bouncing up and down on the floor, like it didn't know how to get itself back up again. I ran down the stairs, tripping towards the bottom. I remember getting up off the floor. The rest is just a blur. I ended up back at the hotel. I must have drove there, but I don't recall a thing. I remember finding myself in the shower sitting at the bottom, back against the wall, staring at my reflection in the tiles, watching the water pour over it, twisting it, changing it, making it look like a different person staring back at me. The whole bathroom filled with steam. I watched my reflection disappear into the distance. I felt the water rise up around me. I was floating. The waves were rough, and the sky was dark and grey. I saw my reflection a few feet ahead, struggling in the water. I swam a few feet to rescue him. I reached out and he grabbed my hand, but he had Craig's face, not mine, nor the face of my Craig, the old, bald, fat Craig he was when he drowned. I pulled my hand away, but he wouldn't let go. I tried to swim, but he pulled me closer. I turned around and his face came close to mine and he opened his mouth to scream. The hot water had run out. It was freezing cold. I jumped to my feet and slipped in the shower. I fell onto the bathroom floor on my back. I rolled around, growling and moaning in pain. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get up again. But staring up at the ceiling and seeing the condensation on the walls, I just wanted to be somewhere fucking dry. I rolled over and started to crawl. I climbed to my feet slowly, bending my back, Bit by bit. That was okay, nothing broken. It was more the shock of it all. I stood in the hotel room dripping wet, leaving a trail on the carpet. It was almost seven o'clock. No sign of Vic. Where was she? Probably at some other bloody Christmas party. I had no idea. Maybe she'd forgotten to tell me. Maybe she hadn't would just zoned it out. I looked at myself in the bedroom mirror, getting fat, going bald. I sat myself down on the end of the bed and started to cry. Cries, to even was I? I slipped off the bed and lay on the floor. I cried for a long time. I must have fallen asleep because I dreamt again that I was on the beach. Craig was walking into the water. I was running across the sand to him. It was coming up to his waist. I opened my mouth and no words were coming out. The water was now past his belly. I tried again and still no words. I reached the edge of the water. The tide washed over my feet. A large wave was coming. It was about to crash over Craig. And I cried out louder than I'd ever cried out anything before. I sat up in the hotel room, shouting Craig's name into the window. Rain was beating against the glass. Another fucking downpour. I was breathing heavy, but I understood now. I knew what I had to do. This was my chance to put it all right. To do what I couldn't do before. What I hadn't been there to do before. Come on, I said to myself. Time to pull yourself together. I put my clothes back on. I picked up my keys. I went back to the van and drove to the house. It was after 10pm and the wind and rain were rough. I had my flashlight with me. I went inside and upstairs and clicked on the light and saw it really was Craig there on the floor. He saw the light and woke up and started to move. He was literally like a fish out of water, flipping and flopping on the ground. But he was much bigger. And making a ton more noise. I kneeled down by him and put my hand on his shoulder. I told him to shush. It's gonna be all right, mate. It's gonna be all right. Water drooled from his mouth and he couldn't keep still. He couldn't really control himself at all, but he nodded his head up and down really fast. When I left the room, he squealed. I shushed him again, said I'd be right back. I ran downstairs. I had to think how I was going to carry him. Couldn't just chuck him in the back of the van. I thought maybe if I went hunting through the neighbours' gardens I might find a wheelbarrow to put him in. Then I had the only piece of good luck I was going to get this Christmas. I looked out of the living room window and there was one streetlight working. One lonely light shining at night and under that light was a shopping trolley turned over. Maybe it had washed there in the flood. Maybe tramps or teenagers had dragged it there. The wind was still lashing but the rain had let off a bit. I went out the front door and across the street, scaring away foxes as I went to the grass bank by the river. It was still muddy and waterlogged. The trolley was just by the footpath. I turned it over. The river was roaring along. The level was still high, but it wasn't going to break. The trolley was tough to push across the grass. I had to carry it until I could roll it along the road. I got it through my front door and pushed it down my hall. I ran up the stairs. I wasn't scared of them any more. Craig saw me and wriggled, reaching out with his arms. I could barely lift him. He seemed to not be able to breathe properly out of the water. I try not to think of how long I'd left him there alone. I carried him in my arms. It was tough. The stairs weren't wide enough and he was so heavy. But he stayed still mostly, stayed pretty calm, trying to make it easier for me. He flopped into the trolley and that wasn't really big enough either. His legs stuck out at the back and he kicked them up and down. He almost kicked me in the face. I wasn't sure if he could understand me but he seemed to know what was going on in my head when he looked at me. He kept his legs still and pushed himself up in the trolley so he fit better. With a lift and a shove I got him over the doorstep and out the front door. We crashed out into the empty street and I started to run. Craig could hear the roar of the water. He leaned over to look at it, looked excited. I rolled him up the road. I rolled him through street-length puddles creating streaks and waves. Just for a moment it felt like we were mucking around just like we used to. I skidded him around the corner and ran him up onto the bridge. I parked up where the bridge was highest. I helped him out of the trolley. It was a mess. The trolley tipped over as I tried to lift him out. I pulled his left arm over my shoulder to stop him falling. I dragged him to the wall and straightened him up. The wall was not very high but he had no coordination. I had to place his hands flat on the top and then lift him up. He seemed to twig what was going on. In fact, he was quite strong. Once he got the idea, he pushed himself up. managed to get his knees up on the top. He was kneeling now, and I thought maybe he might just tumble right into the water. Instead, he started to stand. He was pretty shaky. I thought he might fall, so I got up on the wall too. I took his hand and I steadied him. Suddenly, the flabby, pale Craig was gone. Now stretched to his full height, he looked tall and slim and fit. The wind seemed to break for him. The air was weirdly calm, his white skin had a kind of glow. He put his head back, took in the air and he howled to the moon. I could see the gills on his neck open up. He looked down to the river. He was still holding my hand tight and he tugged me. He looked me in the eye and then looked down at the current. He wanted me to go with him. I stared down at the water, watched it slosh and swirl along. The roar of the water seemed quiet now. I was watching it rush hypnotically by. Water passing through here and going somewhere else. Leading the way. Escaping. Exiting. Not pouring down some drain. Rushing to green pastures to freedom. A force of nature where nothing mattered. No job. No house. No marriage. No mortgage. A way to escape. A chance for it all to be over. A chance to transform disappear and go downstream and leave it all behind that was what craig had done back then given it up and left everything behind he'd thrown in the towel and never looked back i used to think it was tragic but looking at him now i thought about how brilliant it could be to live wild like an animal want nothing tear off your clothes and become someone else leave everything behind and never care about anything at all Ever again. I thought I'd come to save Craig. But now I understood. Now he was gonna save me. I fucking love you, Craig. I'm sorry I never said it when you were alive. I'm sorry I let you die. You meant more to me than some fucking kiss. Who cares about that? It was all so fucking stupid. Everything is so fucked up and stupid. Why couldn't we just make up? Why couldn't we just make everything right again? Craig lifted up his head howling at the moon once more. I stretched to my tallest, took one more deep breath, and did my howl. It made me start to cough. I lost my balance for just a second. Then there was a sound, and a twitch on my side. There it was again. It was Mambo Number 5. My phone was ringing. I could feel the wind again. I could hear the river roaring again. I looked at Craig. I looked at the water. I felt the phone vibrate, and I said, Just give me a sec. I picked out my phone and answered. Calvin, babe, where are you? I locked myself out. What? I'm at the hotel, and I've lost the keycard. I've tipped out my handbag and nothing. I ain't got it. Ask at reception, then. There's no one, no one at reception. And I think I'm going to be sick, babe. Where are you? I really need the bathroom. I jumped off the wall. I'm in town now. You at the pub? Can't you just nip back, babe? Seriously, I'm going to be sick if I don't get inside. I didn't know what to say to her. And then there was an enormous splash. Craig was gone. I turned to the wall and looked down. I saw him dive and rise in the water, swimming like a champion. He popped his head up a few metres down and looked back at me. I couldn't quite make out his face. I didn't know what he was trying to say to me. He turned away dive back under the water, then he just disappeared, around the bend. Babe, you there. Please, can you just come back? I'm going to hurl. For a moment, I didn't know what to do. But I did, really. I knew I'd have to go back and let Vic in. She's hopeless. I didn't want her walking around while she's plastered. I didn't want her getting into any trouble. I hung up the phone and walked back down the bridge through the ankle-deep puddles and back through the house, locking up as I went. I drove back to the hotel, and when I got into the hall, Vic was almost yellow. Quick, hon, please! I put the keycard in the slot, and the lock clunked open. She pushed her way in, and went straight to the bathroom. I could hear her puking up as I closed the door behind us. I kneeled down behind her and grabbed hold of her hair. When it seemed like she was done, I poured her a glass of water. She took it after wiping off her mouth. I hadn't even said a word to her. I'm sorry, Cal, I got carried away. Two-for-one cocktails. Deadly. They catch up with you. She staggered into the room. I followed her close so she wouldn't fall over. She landed on the bed. How are you feeling? You were sick this morning, weren't you? I'm okay. You look a bit off, are you sure? I had no idea what to say to her. I said that the house might be making me feel a bit sick. Could be the mould, it's not good for you. I helped her get undressed. Is it almost done there, babe? No, it's not. I could come over and help you tomorrow, but I'm going to have such a hangover in the morning. She flopped back down on the bed and pulled the duvet over her. She was out like a light. I put the bin by her just in case. I got undressed and lay down next to her. She surprised me by rolling over. Without even opening her eyes, she kissed me on the forehead. Then she buried her head in the pillow. turned off the light. That night I dreamt of the beach again, but now it was empty. The sky was grey like always. The sea was rough like always. But there was no house and no crag. I was standing alone, half naked, trousers on, no shirt. A cold wind was against my back and I was shivering. I stood and I watched the water. I watched it wash in and out. I watched the waves rise and fall and beat down against the sand. When I woke up early the next morning, I got up and dressed quietly so as not to wake Vic. But when I went to the door, I heard her shuffle under the duvet. You going out, babe? I said yes. She asked if I could go get her an espresso from the cafe. I said yes. You're a star, she said, turning back over. What would I do without you? I never went to the cafe. I left the van in the car park and walked into town. The sky was clearer today. You could see blue between the grey clouds. There was even a little sunshine. Because it was the weekend, there were a few more folks around, taking things in and out of the broken buildings. Skips had been brought in by the council, and they were being piled high with everything from bed frames to computers. There were workmen trying to get the traffic lights back on. Cleaners were sweeping leaves and rubbish out of the drains. Cars that had been swept away by the water were being prepared to be towed away. The traffic warden walked by without writing out a single ticket. I sat on the side of the bridge, taken in the air, looking down at the hypnotic waters as they twisted and swirled and rumbled along. It was never-ending, unstoppable. It just went on and on and on, but the water level was finally starting to go down. If anyone saw me, they decided not to do anything about me. I wouldn't have known what to say to anyone if they had come over. I wasn't even sure what I was feeling. I closed my eyes and listened to the wind and to the sounds of the town. I could hear cars and lorries driving along. The church bell was ringing. It was half past the hour. Somewhere in the distance, I could hear carol singers singing. I heard a splash in the water below. A few dozen feet away, children were playing. They were throwing stones in the water. Their dog was barking and was running to the edge. Their mother went crazy, shouting the dog back. She gave her kids a telling off and they blamed each other. I caught sight of our house. It looked dark. It looked quiet. From this distance it looked like any other house. It looked like I could wander over there and walk through the door. Vit would be there and the TV would be on. We'd probably be putting up the tree this weekend. Getting out the mince pies and arguing about how to make eggnog and who we needed to get Christmas presents for this year and how much we had to spend and who would just get a card instead the carol singers were doing Do They Know It's Christmas, and I couldn't take it anymore. I swivelled around and slid off the wall. I started to walk home. I decided I was going to write a letter. I was going to write to Vic, and I was going to explain everything. you for listening to the new ghost stories podcast this story will appear in new ghost stories volume three which will be available in 2021 and if you'd like to read the latest new ghost stories visit my substack at davidpaulnixon.substack.com this podcast is written presented and produced by david paul nixon if you've enjoyed listening please support the podcast by leaving a review on any platform and subscribing to hear future releases you can find out more about New Ghost Stories at my website newghoststories.com and read the latest from me on Twitter by following at New Ghost Stories. We will return with more New Ghost Stories in January. Happy holidays to you all.